Wild, Precious Life is brought to you by Literary Cleveland. Developing writers, amplifying voices, and transforming our community through storytelling. You can explore other voices and discover your own. Search for classes and find your creative community at litcleveland.org. And we're brought to you by Loganberry Books, an independently owned and operated bookstore in the historic Larchmere neighborhood of Cleveland, Ohio. Loganberry features a carefully curated collection of new, used, and rare books in all genres for both readers and collectors, with an inventory over 100,000 volumes. Find your next great read and shop online at loganberrybooks.com. I've lived all over the country. My three children were born in three different states. I think we're on our 13th house, but I'm fiercely loyal to Ohio, the state where I was born and where we live now. So I can get a little cranky when people from away try to tell my hometown who we are or what they think we're about. I think a lot of us are protective of where we're from and sure, Loyalty is good. Neighborly pride is nice. We like to have one another's backs. But I also think loyalty can blind us a little. And sometimes it takes looking at ourselves and our communities through the eyes of an outsider to really see what we've been missing. You know how your house looks completely fine to you until you're having someone over and suddenly you realize your coffee table is full of smudges and you're going to need to scrub that weird moldy slime? in the bathroom sink and clear all those random papers off the counter, we see ourselves a little differently when we imagine through someone else's eyes. And I think it can be good to look at our familiar surroundings and think about what's really working and what could be better. My friend Christian Kiefer does that in his new book, The Heart of It All, which is set in a small Ohio town and asks, how any of us manage in an increasingly divided America to find a sense of family and community. And you guys, I loved this book. Full disclosure, I didn't set out to. I cracked it open with post-it notes preparing to tell Christian all the stuff he got wrong about my home state. But instead, something else happened. I saw Ohio reflected back to me. I saw our awesome grittiness and the way we still bring casseroles, whether someone's been born or died. And I saw the way we've struggled, like so many places across this country, to keep knowing one another across distance, division, and loss. Most of all, I saw love stories, not the shiny kind we see in the movies, but the real, everyday stuff. When we hold someone's hand, when they're sick, or when they've lost their job, or been kind of a lousy father or son. So today, I want to share some of those love stories with you. Our guest is Christian Kiefer, who holds a PhD in American Literature from the University of California at Davis, and is the director of the Low Residency MFA at Ashland University. He's the author of The Infinite Tides, The Animals, and Phantoms, which was one of Kirkus Reviews and the BBC's Best Books of 2019. And he's out with a new novel, The Heart of It All. Christian is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize for his short fiction and has enjoyed a second career in music, releasing a number of albums primarily in the folk rock and avant-garde traditions. 
He lives with his family in Placer County, California. Christian Kiefer, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you. Yay for Wild (laughs) Precious Life. So I live in Ohio and you don't. I was born in Ohio and you weren't. So when I heard that you, Christian Kiefer, California guy, were writing a book called The Heart of It All that takes place in, spoiler alert, Ohio, I was determined not to like it. In fact, I was determined to read it and take you to task. But with the exception of one page where I think you got the light wrong in November and like one other page about the smell of spring, the other like 600 No, it wasn't 600. Like 367 and a half pages are really outrageously good. I got this book like three days ago. And for two of those, I was on vacation and I read it all. And then two and a half of your other books. So now I'm actually a little mad about how much you got right, which is basically (laughs) all of it. Well, that's very kind. (laughs) It's like kindness with an asterisk. So, um... Tell yeah. us some well, that's of your what story. I've come to expect from you, Anne Marie. <laughs> yeah, kindness with an asterisk. Um, so, tell us some of your story, California Christian Kiefer. What made you want to write a book about Ohio? Yeah, you know, I I landed a job running the low residency MFA program at Ashland University, which is uh, equidistant, as you know, between uh, Cleveland and Columbus. I'd never been there before. I'd never been to the state before. I had spent some time in in um, Iowa, so I felt like I had some sense of the Midwest, which proved to be totally untrue, um, as if the Midwest is some monolithic structure, um, very different from region to region. And and coming to you know, so I run this program from California, and I fly back and forth to Ohio as necessary for meetings, and I always find Ohio to be extremely exotic, which. Um, Ohio people probably think is weird coming from California because California <laughs> is, you know, California, Alaska, and Florida are probably like the most exotic states in the union. Ohio, though, you know, there's a lot going on in Ohio that's very, very different from uh, California. Uh, and I was really immediately kind of impressed by the the people and the struggle just to sort of get by on a on a day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month basis in terms of economics and the pressure and what I've sort of perceived as the lack of opportunity, especially in not, – not specifically in Ashland, but in towns that lack a central industry. Ashland has the university and they have a, a fairly big hospital. And I started to think like, well, what would this town be like if I – remove those two big employers because there's a lot of towns in Ohio that you uh, that I uh, drive through and there's maybe the shell of a former industry there that's now shuttered and what remains are uh, people trying to survive in their home in their hometowns without that kind of economic underpinning to pay the bills and get food on the table month to month yeah. Absolutely. These uh, temporary fixes that somewhere along the way became permanent. So in your your book, which is called The Heart of It All, you give us 
characters whose plot lines are a little desperate and threaded together in a in a kind of imaginary small town like you're describing. We meet Tom. He's a foreman of a small metalworks factory. He and his wife, Sarah, have just lost a six-month-old baby. We meet um, Khalid, the owner of that factory, who's, whose parents are coming from Pakistan and moving in with him and his wife and two teenagers. We meet Mary Lou, who's the secretary of that factory, who's living with a mother who's uh, experiencing the early signs of Alzheimer's or dementia. We meet Paula, works at the grocery store, but you can see she's picking up shifts for Sarah, who's not there. And now her own uh, nephew, Anthony's come to stay. So you, uh, the book feels a little like a chessboard. You put all these characters down in a setting in a small down its luck town in rural Ohio. And, you know, conflict obviously ensues. As a writer, there's all kinds of structural kind of geek out questions I want to ask you. But if we start with those, everyone will stop listening. So they've already stopped listening at this point. They're like, God, this book sounds terrible. What a bummer. Bro. <laughs> Um, let's start with the characters. Uh, who came to you first? Which ones did you meet first in your head? I had a short story with Tom in it like 20 years ago. It wasn't quite good enough, but there was some stuff in it that I really liked. And I liked the kind of lonely Bruce Springsteen quality to, to the scene. <laughs> and it was, you know, that story was Tom out on that bench smoking cigarettes on his lunch break with the, with the bruised apple and the ham on white bread sandwich. But it it rebooted for me because I got asked six years ago, I guess, to do a blog post, which was basically about what writers are doing in that moment. So it's like, let's look at your workspace. Let's look at how you work. And let's hear a little bit about what you're working on. And at the time, I had a chronically ill baby daughter, all of my thoughts and and, and heart was infested in that situation. She was in the hospital a lot. I mean, she's fine now. But at the time, she I mean, she's not fine, but she's not in the hospital. Um, and I sat down and, and, and I wrote the first paragraph of the heart of it all uh, just as an exercise of like, well, I'm not writing anything right now. Let me write something right now for you, reader, because that's part of this gig that I'm trying to do. And I wrote that paragraph, that, and it's almost exactly the paragraph that's in the book. And something about that kind of caught, caught my attention. And it was really me putting all my fears about what could happen with my daughter in, into a book. Like, what if she doesn't make it? Because there, there was a long bout of months or year, year and a half where it was it was quite possible that she would die at like any moment and um i was very much unready for that so i think some of the book was my trying to write through that like what is the aftermath of that for a family and then it became more than that and funnier than that in some ways and like a little more a little more dysfunctional and a little more functional and it became not just the story of Tom and Sarah and that family but like the story of kind of the whole town well i'm thinking about a couple of things um everyone in this in, in this book is is on the verge of broken or in the brokenness there are cracks and crags and marriages there is distance and um lonely suffering and and so uh, among other things, this book is like 
what does it mean to truly know anyone, right? What does it mean for a manager to ever know the people who work for her or him? What, what does it mean for a teacher to know a student or even a student to know a teacher to, to be in marriage and to look at your partner and, and one day they're a stranger? You know, how do you be a friend? Um, I, I'm not a factory worker or a supermarket checkout clerk, but I felt seen and understood by the reaching in this book, by the stumbling desire to be known. These characters want to despite the fact that they are living paycheck to paycheck, despite the fact that their marriages are on the brink, um, they 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 want to be seen. And I, I think that's why I reached for books as a kid, why I was bookish then and why I still reach for them now, why I feel drawn to connect with other writers. I, I don't want to chit-chat. I I want to open my heart and and be known. And you you really manage that in these pages. So I guess thank you. <laughs> I mean that is the job, right? I mean, I, I I've said this before, and you've probably heard me say this. You know, our our job is to break the reader's heart so they can put their heart back together, and it's better than it was before. I mean, I think that's wildly overstating what writers actually do, but that's the goal. Uh, you do that here uh, again and and again. Um... And it's it's beautiful. There are all kinds of moments where the characters are nothing like me and exactly like me. Uh, Khalid, the 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 man who is in charge of this, it's a very small factory, right? It's twenty some workers. You know, he's a he's a Pakistani immigrant, and he's simultaneously has both his father and his son, his teenage son, in his house. And you know, he he says uh, things to himself like, you know, how strange it was to be a father to know someone as well as it was possible to know another human being and also to understand that you did not know this person at all. His son, a full and complete self with his own mesh of desires and fears and needs and wants. Like that everyone in this book is is both, um, you know, living piled into this small town and then a stranger sometimes to themselves. And other people and straight yeah stranger to themselves too actually you know like that's the most true i think with anthony shaw who's like he doesn't really know what he wants until suddenly he does yeah uh, anthony so anthony um so paula is one of the characters whose heads were in first she's uh, she works at the supermarket she's kind of doing the job of a manager but not being paid for it and Anthony is her nephew who comes to town anthony says some of my favorite things in the book at one point um Janie, who's Tom's daughter, you know, sort of asks him, you know, what you ask a person, which is like, how how are you finding it here? And and you know, he says, well, I'm I'm still trying to figure this place out. And I, I love this exchange. She says something like, well, there's there's not much to figure out, and it's kind of like what you see is what you get. And he says, I'm not so sure you're right about that. There are some great absences. I'm going to call you both an overwriter and an underwriter. Um, I think that you 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 go to town with descriptions, and then you then you go out of town. You go long past town, and you are out there. Um, but in your dialogue, you're often really sparse. And so when Anthony says, "I'm not so sure you're right about that," as a reader, I am left in that the unexplaining, unexplained absence of that. With a, yeah, he's he's a black kid in a almost entirely white town. He's 20, so he's not quite a teenager anymore. He's talking to 
a teenager and he's he's profiled everywhere he goes. He's profiled in that cafe and he's profiled when he's walking home from work and he's profiled if he's smoking a cigarette at the wrong picnic table at the break. And um, he doesn't say any of that. He just says, I'm still trying to figure this place out. Yeah, he just vacates the scene. Like Tom, Tom's out there at the picnic table, somebody he can he feels like he can sit with and anybody else comes out. Anthony gets up and leaves and goes and smokes around the corner of the building. He's just he's not going to engage. The the thing is about Ohio and this is this is true everywhere, but I found it the the thing is about people who are very conservative is that there's often kind of an argument. You know, they might be against a certain kind of LGBTQAA plus person, or sorry, they might be against that as a people, but if they actually knew somebody who was queer or even trans, they might very well be like, oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm against trans people, but I don't mean you, Bill. Or like, I don't think we should be doing reparations for black Americans, but I don't mean you, Jane. There's always like this sense of like the people that are known who enter the community are somehow not included in this kind of overarching social conservatism. And I, I really did want to, you know, there's a moment where Anthony feels like he's like kind of being looked at at the coffee shop. And there's a moment where he realizes, oh, like nobody gives a shit about me in the coffee shop anymore. And they know my name and they hand me my coffee with my name on it already. Like there's a moment at which He's part of the community of that coffee shop, not the town, but that coffee shop where Jane, who's, you know, white and 17, she can walk around town. The whole town is her community and she's safe everywhere she goes. You know, Anthony has to he has to stake out his places uh, kind of one by one. Otherwise, as as we know from the book, he gets hassled. That's a way of sort of like dealing with kind of the inside and outside of community and how, how these geographical places have different meanings based on kind of our, our socially structured preconceived notions of who these spaces are for and who they're not, which is to say like a place like the town in the book, which has no name is like a very safe place for a particular kind of white person, maybe uh, somewhat less welcoming if you don't match this sort of like, fairly conservative, fairly truncated and circumscribed version of like normalcy, which is like straight, white, you know, working class. You know, that flies really well in this kind of town. If you're if if you don't check those boxes, you've got to work at it in in some kind of undefinable way. And that's that's the big thing with Anthony, you know, An Anthony Shaw, you know, he's he's young black kid from East Cleveland. He comes to town to live with his auntie, who's the probably the only other black um, person in the town. Paula has more or less found a place in the town, although it's fairly clear she doesn't have any real friends. She's um, She goes to church. She has a church community. She goes to work. She has a work community, but like no one's coming over to hang out with her or ask her to go to the movies or anything. You figure out what what kind of place, what kind of community is even available to you in a rural place like what we're talking about in the book. That Paula has one of my favorite lines. I actually think she just thinks it to herself, but it's something like uh, secrets ruin people. Secrets ruin people. And I thought about how that might be true in real life, but that they make books pretty good. 
need some secrets. <laughs> they, they may ruin people, but they really open up books. Hey, back to Anthony and Jane for a second. So there are some neat parallels um, between these two characters. I think at one point when they're in that coffee shop or walking around, Jane talks about like what she dreams, you know, like where she wants to go. And she thinks maybe I'll go to Los Angeles. But then she says something like, you know, but girls like me don't get to do that kind of stuff. And he's, he tries to get her to unpack that. And she's like, well, you know, like they tell you in school you could be anything and you could do whatever you want. But that's – it's really bullshit. It's not really true. And his line, he's just like, well, at least they told you that in school. And there's just like this this beautiful tension between these two. She's a she's a kid of a – white kid of a working class family in a, in a rural go-nowhere town. And – they are so much alike in in one moment and then so very different in another. You know, that's gorgeous. These these parallels between these two kids that because you're absolutely right. She inhabits this town fully. Everywhere she goes, everyone knows exactly who she is. The police stop by and check on her and send her on her way. When the police stop by and check on him, that's not how that goes. The thing about them in terms of writing is, uh, you know, putting them together in that coffee shop during that first scene. I thought, well, this is this is interesting. How can I keep them talking? How can I continue this conversation? How can I, you know, can they be friends? Can they fall in love? You know, because like what 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 could they have in common the writing of that was in some ways the challenge of the whole book it's like they are from uh different spheres in terms of how we would represent them in the media but people are people and they're both you know they're really both kids a 20 year old guy coming from cleveland to date a 17 year old girl regardless of issues of race or culture or ethnicity would be already kind of a story the fact that Janie's this slight little tiny white girl and anthony's three years older you know basically an adult and black and from the city just adds a level of complexity to the whole situation and i think anthony has a much better sense of what that means in terms of risk not just to him but to her than Janie does you know her her reaction is like well people will you know, they'll deal with it. And he's like, yeah, it's the world is not like mm -hmm. you think it is. <laughs> you know, it's a little more complicated than that. Yeah. Actually, one of my favorite things about your writing and what you particularly do in this book is you come at these capital letter themes like grief and racism and immigration, but you come at them from this like angle in a small scene, whether it's in a coffee shop or I love the plot line with Rashid and his grandfather. And so um, Khalid's teenage son, Rashid, is tasked with helping grandpa, who's just come from Pakistan, helping him understand idioms. And so <laughs> grandpa has a little notebook where he writes down things he overhears. And then um, Rashid's dad assigns the teenager to like help grandpa know what this means. So he has to define... What does it mean for a person to be bent <laughs> or what's Pizzagate <laughs> or what does yeah. it mean when someone says it's colder than a witch's tit? Um, yeah. So grandpa, grandpa's <laughs> notebook and Rashid, like the two of them coming together 
Rashid quite begrudgingly, right? He would rather be doing anything else at first. And then he helps he helps explain these things to grandpa and and it's beautiful and it's it's lovely. And then you grandpa overhears because he's around the factory that his son owns and he overhears slurs. He overhears men talking. Usually it's the men saying things they think that he doesn't understand, but he's writing them down. He's writing these slurs down. And so he uh, Rashid, the teenager, has to decide when grandpa asks me what these terrible things mean, which are often slurs directed at his 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 grandfather who's new to this country, should he tell him? And and I love that that Rashid, a teenager, goes to his father, a father with whom he doesn't share like all this great intimacy, right? If anything, Rashid's closer to his grandfather than he is to his dad, but he goes to his dad for help and says, Grandpa wants to know what this mean, what this means. Um, my temptation as a as a novice writer is to make the scene really big. The words, the, the racial slurs are spray painted on the town water tower, and now it's up to a scrappy teens to determine who wrote the the racist <laughs> vandalism and right. save the day. Um, but you write these really beautiful small scenes. How do you well, do that? That sounds a lot better than what I wrote, actually. <laughs> No, how do you keep it small and, and like get all that in there? I really value subtlety the most in terms of art, writing and film in particular, like narrative art forms. I really do appreciate kind of a deft and gentle hand. I mean, for that reason, I, I really love Henry James. He's um, He's always really, really good at having like, you know, the most dramatic thing in, in the whole book is like one character stands up and the other one doesn't. And it's like, my God, you know, I can't believe it. The Viscount of, you know, <laughs> the Viscount of Chechnya stood up in that moment, you know. You know, speaking of, of, of film, like so, somebody like Tarantino, who I, I, I certainly recognize his brilliance, but like subtlety is, I mean, he's doing the opposite thing, right? He's like, I want no subtlety. I want to just go full bore the other direction. And like, I, I appreciate that. But as an art, as art, I don't care. It's not a thing that I want to engage with. Like I want, I, I really like quiet, careful, very beautiful and very felt, not stories, but images. So in terms of like a narrative, my, my books tend to be fairly quiet. Even if stuff's happening, even if there's like, I mean, my novel, The Animals, was like, let's take the boring thing that I do, but give everybody bears, cocaine and firearms and like put them in a in a blizzard and see what happens. But even the even, you know, that book ends in kind of like a shootout. But of course, because it's me, like it's in the winter, it's cold, it's very quiet. The snow is muffling everything. It's unclear, like who's chasing who, you know, and I love a, a particular kind of reading experience. Um, I know you've had Ben Percy on the show, right? <laughs> I have a little yeah. different uh, than what you're describing, though. Ben says that he wants a reading experience that makes him want to lean forward. And like, I definitely want one that makes me want to lean back. It's funny to say it this way, but like, I'm not interested in any kind of page turner. That's not what I'm after when I pick up a book. Like I'm, I'm after the, 
prose version of poetry. You know, poetry gets to be poetic. Prose, it's, if, if it's too poetic, it's overwritten. I'm definitely a guy like, why use one adjective when you can use seven? I fully embrace adverbs and adjectives and like, let's, let's use language as much as we can. I'm, I'm, I'm much less interested in like very spare, what they call sort of muscular, you know, they use this term like muscular prose. And I'm like, I don't want any prose to be muscular. I want it to be like flabby. I want it to just like soak in like, like you spilled bacon grease on the carpet. For that reason, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in particular uses of language that really do use words to carry you out into a particular quality of the heart. That writers who write more spare also do, but they do it from a completely different direction, right? And I'm thinking of like somebody like Tobias Wolf who like does that but but certainly is coming from you know if we can be so crass the the, the Hemingway side of things where I'm definitely coming from the Faulkner, Faulkner side of things. Sure. But the but the Faulkner side of things is also like you know Jasmine Ward and I think Lauren Groff and um you know I I think there's a a, a fair number of really you know some of the best writers working today are like coming from that angle in terms of of language and, and the kind of linguistic dexterity that that is required of pouring on these sentences in a way that where the clauses kind of aggregate into meaning over the course of maybe a four or five or six or one page long sentence. And it's that it's that trick thing of like going like, OK, I'm, I'm you're doing it to purpose, right? You're not just going like, I'm going to write a fucking long sentence because I love William Faulkner, you know. So my agent once said, like, Christian, I know you love Faulkner and lots of writers love Faulkner, but nobody else does. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, like, you, it's taken me a long time to kind of balance between like, OK, like I love a certain kind of sentence, but like the certain kind of sentence can't just be like popping wheelies over and over again. Like there, you have to actually like get somewhere too. like you've got to put pressure on something. You know, the pressure can be linguistic, but the pressure is also largely for the reader pressure put on the characters in some way. Um, and it, it doesn't have to be like the traditional conflict because we see in like, I mean, Matt Salises has talked a lot about how that kind of traditional sort of hero's journey co construct, that that kind of conflict is a decidedly kind of Western way to go about narrative making, where the linkages in something like a K-drama, which he writes about a lot in his in his newest book, are constructed in very different ways than the kind of traditional narrative. So, like, there are different ways to put pressure on things, but the, the point is you've got to, um, one domino has to hit something else. It doesn't have to be another domino, but it has to be something, because otherwise the reader is just reading sentences. And, and then you've got something like poetry that's not about anything. I'm kind of good at that. Yeah, we all are. We all are. <laughs> and so it's that balance. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast.
That makes me think of a narrative voice question, which no one's going to care about but you or me, and I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, so it, several of your characters are teenagers, but I'm going to use the example of Charlie. He's uh, Tom and Sarah's son. He's he's a skateboarder. He's a sweet kid. He's also kind of a knucklehead. He's a teenager, right? Figuring out what he can smoke with his friend, what they can get away with. Yeah. But inside of his head, you give him kind of an old soul and words that you teach, I teach, like I live with teenagers. We know that the teenagers wouldn't use these words. So there's a, a, a little scenario where he and his friend are asked to help out in a preschool classroom. It's their old teacher and, and they're, they're reading a book to the kids. And he's looking at the kids and he's feeling a little nervous about reading this book. And he describes the children in this way. He says, quote, these expectant, rapturous, laughing children, their dewy eyes staring up at him, pulses quickening. Again, he's a knucklehead teenager skateboarder. He wouldn't say it that way, right? But I'm I'm pointing to this because, like, for whatever reason, I feel like it works. And I think my question is, like, why does inserting more erudition and self-awareness into this character when they're probably not that smart or self-aware? Why should you do that? And why did it work? That's a really great question. And you're right. Nobody's going to care about this but us. No. You know, regardless of the actual language Charlie or a character like Charlie has access to, when we're talking about his inner life or his reaction to what's happening, I, I don't feel any need to put the brakes on the language he could know or the language that I know that he'll never know because it's not, you know, it's it's not his dialogue. It's it's the inexpressible parts of his being, his inner being that are are um, necessarily reacting to the world around him. So it, it's it's non-linguistic information for Charlie anyway. So describing it as the writer isn't necessarily fettered by you know the linguistic information he carries as a character. So I just I just feel like it can go all out all the time, except for when they're talking. And then when they're when when they're talking when there's dialogue, you know, that that presents a different level of difficulty, especially when you're a, a 52-year-old white male cisgendered heterosexual writer and you're writing about Pakistani immigrant characters or um, black characters or gay characters or, or, or um, any anything that's quote unquote, other than my lived experience. Um, I was really careful in particular to not try to write dialect. Like there's no like African-American vernacular English happening in the book. I mean, I guess there is a tiny, tiny bit, but it's it's very sparse and very careful. Not imagining, but like I had no business like trying to capture an East Cleveland dialect in, in a text. I, I think that stuff, it, it doesn't read well, it doesn't track well, and it certainly doesn't age well. And, and just beyond that, like why, why try to do that or how, how would I do that in a way that didn't feel hurtful in some significant manner? You know, the dialogue is mostly like pretty, pretty like, 
traditional standard English throughout. I mean, you want to approach those, you want to approach all the characters with as much respect as, as you can. And, and I think part of it is just like giving them voices that aren't lessened by your own imagination of what their grammar might be. Yeah. Well, you don't want to be racist while trying to write about racism. You don't want to, you want to, you don't want to be presumptuous as a white man trying to write a black man. But I mean, there's already presumption, right? There's already presumption in doing that at all. Well, if you're a white guy and only write white guys, that's also a kind of presumption. So you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. So you want to at least be, as you said, respectful to the the characters you've invented on the page. And I think if 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 your tendencies are, are Faulknerian in your description, I actually respect your Hemingway-esque restraint when it comes to inserting your own self into the the speech of these characters, that you back off and that you don't presume to always know what's in Anthony's head. You give him space and that space feels really respectful and really right. And I think what, it's Kai Slayman who talked about white people are often sleepwalking when it comes to racism in America. You know, we they they don't see it. And I think that many of the characters in this book, Janie in particular, uh, didn't see the racism in her own town until she met Anthony. You are restrained and you give him space and you give us space. And it really, really, really works, man. Again, I was going to take it a task. I live in Ohio and you don't, but so much of what you've done here on the pages is is really really right. And I'm, I'm grateful to have this book out there. I mean, the, the aches and the powerlessness, um, and these complicated cracks, uh, these are not, these are not me. And yet all of these become my people and I feel kinship with these characters and, uh, you do, you reach my heart, man. And you, you break it a little, but not too much. Thanks, Anne-Marie. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, we, we should geek out a little bit less, but I do want to ask you, is it true that you title all of your works in progress, Goose Attack? Goose Attack. Yeah, that's right. With an exclamation point at the end. <laughs> what? Yeah. I've been doing that since I was about 19. Uh, and so, yeah, they're all called Goose Attack until I have a name. Um, I'm working on a new book called Goose Attack right now, actually. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I, it's, I mean, a long story, but a friend of mine, um, retitled one of my, one of my short stories in college Goose Attack and with an exclamation and I, cause it was, there was a goose attack in the story and I just thought like, that's such a good title. So I just keep reusing it, hoping at some point it'll stick and I'll have a novel called Goose Attack. I hope you never yeah, What if do. the heart of it all was called Goose Attack? <laughs> I would be even less inclined to read yeah. it. <laughs> even le- is that possible? I came with a pretty low bar. Goose attack <laughs> in Ohio, an Ohio novel. Um, okay, I always wrap with uh, my camp camp counselor lightning round. I could talk sentences and verbs with you all day, but again, we would lose everyone. So we I'm already gonna... have at this point. We can do whatever we want. Yeah, it's just it's just you Nobody's and me. Nobody's listening we anymore. We could just play the drums. <laughs> All right. Uh, these are just a few uh, multiple choice. Just pick one, okay? Yeah. Uh, dogs or cats? Dogs. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Making music or climbing rocks? Climbing rocks. 
What would you be more likely to eat, a tuna noodle casserole or Cool Ranch grackles? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That tuna casserole sounds weirder, so I'd eat that. I always go for the weirder thing. I don't know what a grackle is, I'm afraid. Is it a bird? You mean like the actual grackle? Okay. A Cool Ranch actual grackle. I guess I'd eat the grackle. Cool Ranch grackles. Uh, Early in the book, people make an ice cream run. So are you more of a chunky monkey guy or half-baked? Oh, chunky monkey. No no question. Good stuff. No question, no delay. You are semi-famously the author of the novel Phantoms, which I've also read about a jam- about Japanese internment in California during World War II, a book that I absolutely recommend to folks. But as we talked about, titles are tricky in the literary world. So with whom would you rather be confused? Uh, Dean Kuntz, the author of the horror story Phantoms, or Norton Jester, author of the classic children's book The Phantom Tollbooth? Oh, uh, The Phantom Tollbooth, for sure. I mean, that's a that's a stone cold classic. Come Absolutely. On. Um, I haven't met uh, many other people with your name, but would you rather be confused with the actor Kiefer Sutherland or the painter Georgia O'Keeffe? Oh, good question. Um, I, I, if I was confused with Kiefer Sutherland, I'd at least be alive. <laughs> but Georgia O'Keeffe is a lot more important to me. So I guess I'd pick Georgia O'Keeffe and be dead. <laughs> Excellent. I'd be dead in the desert. Um, yeah. I actually went a little deep dive for the meaning of the the name Kiefer, and the books are divided on this. Some argued yeah. that it meant pine tree. Others said barrel maker. Uh-huh. So which do you favor? Are you more of a pine tree or a barrel maker? There's also dentists, oh. too, that are Kiefer. Kiefer also means dentist. So I think we basically climb pine trees with barrels and fixed teeth up there. <laughs> I think, I'm pretty sure that's what we did in Germany. That's probably why we left. We like to say that we left during uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, but I think we probably got kicked out because they're like, what are those kefirs doing in the trees with their barrels and the teeth? It's weird. Get them out of here. Send them to Illinois, which is where we ended Too up. Too many barrels full of teeth. Got it. Too many barrels full of teeth. I mean, what are you going to do with the teeth if you don't have a barrel? Throw them in the tree, I guess. Seriously. No, that's <laughs> littering. Come on now, Anne-Marie. Be responsible. Uh, are you more of an early bird or a night owl? Night. Who wants to get up? I don't I don't want to get up at all. Ever. I know. No. I greet the day with sort of like that Dunkin' Donuts commercial from the nineteen eighties. Like the guy would get up and be like, It's time to make the donuts. And he would just mutter through the whole beginning of his day, It's time to make the donuts. That's just what I say most mornings. It's time to make the donuts. And and afternoons and evenings, <laughs> it's time to make the donuts. It's the last thing I say before I go to bed. Um, Are you more of a risk taker or the person who knows always where the Band-Aids are? Uh, Both. Yeah, if you're going to be one, you should probably have the other. Got to have the Band-Aids. These last few are fill in the blanks. If if I wasn't working as a teacher and writer and I maybe had a little magic, I would instead be a... Geneticist. Yeah. I do something hard science for sure. Physics, maybe. I mean, not physics isn't really hard science, but you know what I mean. Something with some nuts and bolts. Gotcha. What's something? And math. What's something quirky that folks don't always know about you? Could be a like, a love, a pet peeve, a weird job you do on the side. I mean, in addition to the super pretentious movies that I mentioned earlier, I also like some extraordinarily bad movies. Like, I love the Adam Sandler movie, Pixels. (laughs) 
a lot. I've probably seen it like 50 times. Um, I love like Moana. Like, I mean, Moana is like a great film, but like, you know, like I like some films that like a normal, like Ingmar Bergman freak probably wouldn't be super into. Like a movie has to either be like super pretentious or it has to be cocaine bear. Gotcha. Like there's nothing like in between for me. I got into an argument with a film scholar recently that the money pit is Tom Hanks's seminal work. So I'll, oh, I'll join that you. That's a great on movie. that limb. Yeah. <laughs> need some, you need some garbage. Absolutely. Um, last two. What do you love about where you live? Oh, it's, uh, you know, I live about 20 minutes from the house I grew up in right now. And it's so ingrained in my soul this place that i have um you know when when you live in a place for a long time you you have deep knowledge about the quality of the air you know it's like it's like understanding that you just can't get in a cursory way if you're moving from place to place um the the way the light comes through the trees is is a um indicator of a whole host of of environmental information that you um, that you know in, in your bones, even if you can't articulate it. You know, it's 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 that thing of uh, you know the farmer looking out on the on the dry plains where there's not a cloud in the sky and going like rain's coming. <laughs> you know, it's that it's that, and it's like you know you get a sense of of the the, the patterns of of the world in a, in a deep way and, and the patterns of the people, you know, I've lived here. I mean, in this region for 50 years and it's surprising still in, in so many ways that I like, I'm also like, I'm really a country mouse in a city. I don't really know where the threats are coming from or like what I should be looking for. Like my agent, in New York, my agent will literally like grab my hand and walk me across the street because she's like, I'm afraid you're going to get run over because you're like walking around like an idiot. And I'm like, well, I don't know what's going on. Like everything's honking. Lights are flashing. Like people are going both directions on the sidewalk. Like there are people on the sidewalk. There are sidewalks. Like all of this is very complicated for my tiny little brain. Gosh, even my answers are like ridiculously Faulknerian. A little bit. God, somebody needs to just tell me to shut the hell you're, up. <laughs> shut the hell up. You're good. You're good. Uh, you're right, though. The air breathes different in the place we call home. Yeah, yeah. All right, last one. Last one. If we were to take a picture of you, a snapshot of you really happy and doing something you love, what would we see? I, I think I love reading more than just about anything. But I also really love climbing mountains and, like, the, the reading thing is going to be understandable to most of your listeners, but the mountain thing, like the harder and weirder and bleaker the climb is like the, when the blizzard happens and the avalanche danger is high and you're freezing and, and, you know, I'm, I'm climbing in California. So it's not like I'm talking about climbing in the Himalayas. Um, but it, it still can get dangerous and get pretty wild pretty quickly. And when that stuff happens, I like it more. Um, I think it's just because, like, the more stuff that's happening, the, the more perceived or real danger there is, the less possible it is for your mind to wander to anything else. So you, you just get very focused 
There's nothing else in your thoughts whatsoever, but but your situation, um, where you're at, what you're doing, and 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 how your body and mind can react and cope with the situation. Where you know, living living a life as a writer, it, it's it's very cerebral. You spend a lot of time in your own head and your own thoughts, and 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 it's largely fairly difficult to share even if you have a writing group like the process of writing is is very isolating um and quiet and and climbing you know you have a partner but it's also fairly isolating but it's but it's simultaneously you know, the the potential for death or dismemberment is so high that you really do have to be 100% focused the whole time and um, that part of it, I really, really like. I, I like how it takes me to zero, um, and it does it every time. It takes me to zero every time, and I, and I love that about it. Yeah. You need something to pour your pour your soul out, you know. Otherwise, it's pretty full a lot. Getting out of your head and just into your body. Yeah, man. I love it. Well, Christian Kiefer, thank you for coming on the show today. I love you. I love you right back, you crazy man. Thank you for bringing your heart here to Cleveland to talk to me here in the heart of it all. I love Cleveland. Uh, in an exchange midway through your book, a character asks, why does everything have to be so hard? And the reply that she gets is, I wish I knew. And rather than being a source of frustration, I found this comforting. Other people's lives are tough. None of us has it figured out. And we are all in this together. Thank you for somehow bringing that comforting near pessimism into the book and into the studio and making it awesome. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it so much, Anne-Marie. Absolutely. Folks, our guest today has been Christian Kiefer. He's the author of several books, including the critically acclaimed Phantoms and a new one called The Heart of It All. Buy them, read them, and know you're not alone. To everyone listening, we're wishing you love and light wherever the day takes you. Be good to yourself, be good to one another. And we'll see you again soon on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.